Welcome to the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter, MD School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we are talking about learner assessment, assessment of medical students in the clinical setting. Faculty's assessments are important to both high-stake decisions and learners' continued progress. They help determine students' grades, contribute to the ever-important narratives in the student's MISP or Dean's Letter, and provide much-needed feedback to trainees. We want our assessments to be fair and accurate, but the process has its challenges. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Judy Brenner about how to submit more accurate, helpful, and meaningful assessments. Judy is the Associate Dean for Educational Data and Analytics at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. Judy, welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me today. So let's let's start with where the challenges lie. Why are clinical assessments so challenging? That's a great question. Um, and I think that the biggest reason why they are challenged is because of the number of people submitting evaluations. So by the very nature of a clinical assessment, we want authentic um, assessments completed by people who are really doing the supervising. And that means our students are all over and our assessors are all over. So that makes a lot of sense. And then, and, and what do you think the cha- what's most challenging about it to the individual faculty member? I think that what is most challenging to an individual is really being able to translate observations of a learner that are probably made over time into words that really synthesize their, you know, their assessment of, of the student. That's, so that's really interesting. We, so I did, a, I actually did a faculty development session on this last night. And what we realized was, so that, that, that did, I think, turn out to be probably the biggest challenge, right? To put their clinical performance into words accurately. And what we realized is that when we fill out assessments and we're writing that narrative part, we're often trying to take specific scenarios that we saw, the things we saw the student do or the resident do, and then sort of generalize it into a comment about them, such as takes, a, this is a bad example, was like takes a detailed history, right? Rather than giving the specific example. And what we all sort of realized was that we probably should, should, be doing less of that, right? Instead of trying to generalize it into a generic description of what they do, we should probably be keeping those descriptions, those detailed descriptions of the actual authentic encounters and putting those in as examples, because that's what really differentiates the learner. I think you're a hundred percent, you know, spot on with that. And I, and I think you're right. It's a struggle between some desire or some, you know, I guess it's some instinct that that a supervisor has that they have to synthesize. Yet the truth is what you just described, which is that 
the best kind of feedback is using a specific example. That is what someone reading it will recall. Um, and that reader could be your student receiving the feedback, or your reader could be the audience like the reader of the MSPE. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so I, I think the challenge then becomes how to get people to, you know, to incorporate those specific examples into their narrative feedback. Yeah, for for sure. And um, and I, I know that's something that we're working on, which is why we're having these faculty development sessions around assessment. That's one of the main reasons. And hopefully something that we'll be able to help with today as you and I chat. Um, so let me ask you this. If you could change one thing about the students' assessments in years three and four, what would it be? So if I could change one thing, let me see. Um, I think my my current thinking, this probably has changed over time. So if you asked me two years ago, I would have said something probably a little different. And, and I'm certain that if you ask me two years from now, I will say something different. But I think that what I'd want to see more of right now is more in the moment workplace-based assessment, direct observation. So you know, that is, is certainly the way things appear to be headed. Um, and I'd love to incorporate that. I'd like to see that incorporated into the culture of our clinical, you know, our clinical years. And for our listeners, can you describe what workplace-based assessment means? So, uh, absolutely. So it simply means, you know, walking in, I'll give you an example. So we'll, we'll use the same paradigm as before. Um, so I work in clinic. Uh, that's where I, I see residents actually um, in my clinical role. And it means me walking into the room. It means me watching. It means me um, watching with a purpose. Um, and, and I would say that ideally the learner is contributing to what I should be observing so that there's um, a, a relationship built there about this, the, the learner engaging the supervisor in the process of assessment. So we walk in together. I'd like you to watch me um, talk to this patient about the plan. Okay. I walk in, I make my observations and I fill out that form in the moment. And the form that gets filled out should A, be competency-based or some, in some way, shape or form should be framed on something larger, something that we're trying to add data points to. Um, and it should then also include a qualitative comment, ideally focus on the positive. So what did that learner do well? And then an opportunity for getting to the next level. So I, I know that I probably said a lot, but that's what I'd love to see happen routinely. That's a great example of how to do an observation. And so just, and, and then just to clarify, when you say go out and fill out the form, typically for workplace-based assessments, these are, these are things like the mini CEX. Um, we have them for third and fourth years. We call them a SCO, a structured clinical observation, where you're meant to only observe a really brief, or not brief encounter, a piece of the encounter is a better way to say it. Um, so we're not saying that faculty need to go in with a third year medical student and watch them do an entire history and physical, right? We're saying that they can go in for five minutes. I think that's an important piece to communicate too. Completely agree. And you're right. This, 
this becomes something that's frankly realistic, you know, going into busy on any busy clinical service and observing long, you know, interactions between a between a patient and the learner is really just not realistic. So part of workplace-based assessment is, in my mind, making it something that really can be done frequently. So I guess the part that I didn't say is, ideally, this is also done on a handheld device, because again, that is how we are doing things these days. So one thing that we're striving to create, and we haven't quite gotten there yet, is um, having the student be able to send a QR code with the form to the person supervising such that, and and then have the the person um, completed in the moment. We have found, we've been able to do this by uh, email and that doesn't even work quite as well. So I say this because, you know, in thinking about how to operationalize an idea like this, you know, really it's important that we pay attention to the barriers. I love that idea because the goal with workplace-based assessments, right, is that there's multiple brief assessments. And so if we want it to happen quickly and easily, I think the technology piece is really important. A hundred percent. So we're talking about, you know, workplace-based assessments are a type of um, observation-based um, assessment such as our the typical end of clerkship evaluation form that people fill out, meaning that what we're using as data is primarily observations um, or all, all observations. It's observations, it's questioning, and then observing what's coming back when you ask questions. And that's pretty much what we've got, right, for our data inputs. Um, and students and even faculty um, say that clerkship evaluations are very subjective. So what do you think about this? They're not, it's not an MCQ, right? So what, what's your response to that? Well, so my, it's a good question. You're right. That comes up all the time. And, and it's, it's frustrating because I think that the word subjective, you know, is, implies something negative, but I like to turn that around and call it something impression-based because it is based on impressions. Now, those impressions should be informed by a well-anchored or well-framed system. So you're thinking the, you know, the assessor is thinking in the context of something larger and something that is, is set by standards, but it is based on impression. And impression is important that people embrace because their patients are going to be making impressions mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. them every single day of their clinical lives. So, you know, whenever a learner says this to me, I said, that is, you know, I, I, I use the verbiage. I say, this is impression based and that's a good thing. Let's base, let's embrace, um, impressions. And once we get to multiple, as you, you know, as you say, multiple points of, of assessment, then it becomes a really reliable form of assessing a student. Um, there's one thing I also wanted to go back to that you said you said that we want to frame everything in the positive because all comments, right, should be aimed at improvement. So I just wanted to clarify that when we use our impressions and our observations to write down narrative assessments, just to clarify for people, those are still, we're still assessing, and that's considered a narrative assessment when you write down your impressions in the comment section. But what comes out of that can be used for feedback, 
right? Because we're always we sh- we're always basing our feedback on our assessments, but just to differentiate assessment and feedback, that was one thing I wanted to differentiate. And then the other thing is just the the comment about we should frame everything written and verbal in the positive, right? So that does I just want to clarify because you didn't mean we should never tell them something that they need to work on. And I'm wondering if what, if you want to just clarify that piece. Yes. So I, I think, well, I do think it's important that we highlight what is done well. So just so that a, a learner understands um, and is able to positively reinforce behaviors that are effective. And when I say, and, and, and by no means do I think that we should not give um, suggestions on how to improve but it should be it should be said in that light. So, in order to get to the next level, a learner would dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. So I just I just had to fill out a form last night um, on somebody who I had observed earlier in the day, and my feedback um, on how to get better was to make that learner a little bit more open and receptive to feedback. Um, because I was meeting a little resistance. So there are two ways that you could say that. You could say it in the negative, but instead you could say it in order to get to the next level, make yourself more receptive to feedback. I love that. So I thought that was just a really important distinction, but I really really like that so much. Um, That's interesting. And I had never thought about that as framing it in the positive, but that is what you're doing. Um, yes, that's great. You know, in, in light of, you know, all the conversations around really psychological safety, I don't know if this is the exact way to use that terminology, but I think of it that way, you know, how will somebody best receive, um, and be able to incorporate any kind of feedback, any kind of narrative assessment and, um, into improvement, into getting better. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that plan for improvement, I I often, you know, when we say, what are the three things we want you to remember? So when I do sessions on feedback, one of the the top three things I always want people to remember is to create a plan because it is that plan for the next step that I think can change a feedback session from somebody feeling badly, right, that they're not doing something well to something really transformative and empowering to say, but here's what, here's what you can do, right, to be even better, to take this next step, to grow. And it matters tremendously the way you frame it. A hundred percent. And you're right. That is the, that is a very important and really critical component of feedback is, is the discussion. And then, well, what do you do next? Yeah. Well, so part of me feels like I veered us way off topic because we're now wait, we're talking about feedback. We're supposed to talk about assessment, but I realize I haven't because that is how intricately related they are. So it's probably inevitable, right, that, um, that one of us took us there. Sorry, it was me. All right. So I'm going to roll us back to assessment. Um, and I wanted to ask you about bias. Um, bias is, is a real issue with observation-based assessments. Um, and so I just wanted to, to talk a little about that and, and what you recommend for faculty in terms of trying to mitigate the inevitable bias that's involved. So that's also a good question and a very you know, relevant topic in, in modern day education. Um, 
and it's tough. So I would say, I mean, a few comments. First of all, I think that the meta community is really, for the first for the first time in my you know ten or so years doing this job, really focusing on this. So the first question is is how do you measure bias? Like how do you even understand that bias exists? And there are lots of groups that are coming together to be able, you know, to come up with methodology that allows us to look at our own assessments and, you know, answer that first question of, is there bias? Um, And when I say that, I mean, is there a, I guess, tangibly what we're looking at right now is, is there a difference being observed in certain populations that is based not on their competency or skills, but based on other factors. And when the answer to that is yes, bias exists. Mm-hmm. So, I, so not to make you know this answer complicated, but I do think the first question that must be answered is: Is there bias? I think that clinical assessments and every any kind of assessment offers the potential for being biased. So it's not just impression-based, multiple choice exams, written exams, OSCEs, anything have the potential for introducing bias. So, you know, again, I'll go back to, I have to know if it's there first. That's a great point that all these, it's, no, it's a great point that all these other methods that we use, right, there's potential bias in, in them. And we've, in, in general, in education, we found that there is bias in, um, often, in these other forms of assessment. And I wasn't even thinking about that piece. And I think that's an important point to make too. Yeah. So I, so, and you know, it's, it's interesting, like as you delve more deeply into a topic, you start to understand what you don't know. So this is one of those topics where I feel like we're, we're learning We're you know, in the moment we're all learning about it. I think that we're going to see a lot of literature come out in the next, you know, six months to a year uh, plus about, you know, how do you measure it? How do you identify it? And then what do you do about it? Mm -hmm. But, you know, to go back to your first question, what do we do about it? Um, Because we have gone through these exercises at our institution is, you know, first thing is just a kind of making people aware that this exists and and then having uh, faculty development sessions around implicit bias. So, you know, this is when we really have to, and, and you know, and other aspects of, miti- of miti- mitigating this. Um, so I think it's, it's, it has to become something that the entire system endorses as an important, um, you know, component of development and realize that the faculty development that may be initiated by assessment is actually, you know, intended to produce a more widespread um, you know, outcome of equity. What are students' biggest concerns or frustrations with clerkship assessments? What do you think feels the most upsetting to them? And yeah. and I don't mean, and, and I mean beyond not getting a grade that they'd hoped that they'd get, you know? Yeah. No, what, I, what do you think bothers them the most? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've thought about this a lot. And I think what is most hurtful to a student is a time when they establish a trusting relationship with a supervisor and somehow the assessment doesn't mirror, doesn't match what they perceive their um, 
performance and skills to be. I think that it gets at the heart of trust. And I think that that is the thing that is is most difficult for students. I think part of it is that they they worry or they believe that some of the effort that they've put forth has actually not been seen. And I think that's really hard for people who are hardworking mm-hmm. and want their work to be, you know, to be recognized. On the faculty side of that, do you think that that happens because it's not until the faculty member sits down and think and goes through the assessment form and thinks really comprehensively and deeply about the student's performance that they start to pull apart some areas where maybe the student wasn't performing as highly as they thought? Or do you think it's more related to faculty's discomfort in giving direct feedback to students verbally and instead putting it on paper? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good differential diagnosis. (laughs) And I'm not sure what, you know, what causes it. I, I would, I would venture to guess both. Probably. I, I mean, I know this is this is tough. I'm sure have both had that happen to us even at some point, right? And in, in our career. So um, but I know that that is one of the challenges of assessment for faculty. So I think it's just important then for us to be aware of how distressing that is for the student, given the amount of work that they put in. And so it's really our responsibility to make sure that we're honestly communicating our impressions of their performance. Yeah. And, and do it frequently. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with at the end of the day, just saying, you know, I noticed that you decided to, you know, go back to a patient's bedside after we finished rounds, as an example. Um, and, I, and I was really, you know, I think that you did a really nice job with that. So even little pieces of things that we recognize, that is so, so meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. Kelly Skeff, mm-hmm. I remember who you know, such an amazing educator he is. Um, And I was so honored and fortunate to be able to attend his program. But I remember he always used to say, make sure to sometimes just catch people doing something right and tell them, right, rather than waiting for this sort of big sit-down feedback session. Yeah, I think that that's a good rule of thumb no matter where, you know, no no matter what, whether it's with a learner, a colleague, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone. It's just... People want their want to be recognized. Yeah, that's that. That's great advice. So, speaking of advice, um, if you had to choose one thing to advise faculty on when using rating scales on assessment forms, what would it be? I think most importantly is that they there is an understanding of what that rating scale means. And, and sometimes that means when you're a faculty member, and now I'm going to put myself not in uh, my dean with my dean hat on, but as a faculty member who fills out evaluations or assessments, um, I want to know what they mean. What what the person who is issuing this assessment intends me to you know to answer. And I think all too often, and that that means demanding things of people. That means saying, I need development on this. I need to understand what your eight means or your five means, or even what this descriptive anchor means. And I think that, I think that's what, as a faculty member, what we, what we deserve. Yeah, I I completely agree. And the tricky part of that is that that takes time. 
that's not a quick faculty development session. It really yeah. does take time. You really need to hash through the forms and and to, to really grasp that full understanding of them. But I do think it's time really well spent. And I can say that I know faculty who go through these sessions say that they're really, in the end, they're very thankful for it because it's going to help with you know, many, many, many assessments and probably help them in in a sense be much more time efficient going forward when they fill out the assessment forms. Yeah. You know, it's it's not, they, they should appreciate it. I mean, it, because it's really part of the equation. You know, you can't do this well without going through that. It's kind of like, I don't know, I have teenage uh, children and I couldn't let them drive without going through, you know, some kind of educational program first. I don't know if that's a good example, mm-hmm. but it is it is really part of the process. So, it, you know, it should be, you know, this is in thinking about an ideal system, it should be that nobody is actually permitted to complete an evaluation form without having had that discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what, a, you know, what a wonderful place medical education would be if, if that were just part of the you know, part of the responsibility of, um, you know, the directors of clerkships and, and so forth is just to understand that is part of the process. Yeah. And just shift the culture. Yes. Right. To be that way. And then we all expect it and then it doesn't feel time consuming. <laughs> we want it instead. <laughs> That's right. And, and you know, we feel proud of it when, when we yep. can do it that way because we're all working towards an improving system. When we try to cut corners and just and, and look, this is the reality. When you ask what, what the biggest challenge was, it's the number of people out there completing these assessments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to get to everybody is is an impo- it's a very, very challenging task. But it's worth the effort. So even if you get to, you know, the folks who are filling out a lot of evaluations, who have frequent touch points, you know, those are those are people I would absolutely invest in. So, and I would say that we care, right? We yes. as faculty, we care that we're doing a good job in our assessments because we care how the students do. <clears throat> I think particularly because we we spend time working with them. We want them to succeed. And we also remember what it's like to be in their shoes, no matter how long ago it may have been. We really, I think all of us, I talk about this a lot with faculty. Everybody remembers that really well. Yeah. And if you begin to forget, put yourself in the learner's shoe once again, because it's really important to never forget that. So as we wrap up, what do you think are the two to three most important takeaways for us as faculty to be better assessors in the clinical setting. If we said, you know, if you remember two or three things that you can go out and do starting today that will help you be better at this, what would you say? So maybe one is just something practical. I would write down examples. I would commit to something that works, whether it's notes in a um, on your iPhone or phone, whatever, <laughs> whichever version you use or, or an actual little notepad, I would, I would commit to writing examples down since we said at the beginning, that is what is most important. Um, I would, you know, commit to completing assessments more frequently, um, the written ones. And if that is not plausible, I would at least commit to stating something that was done well, more often, more regularly. 
more regularly. And what about, can I add one? Sure. What about, and those were great, by the way, also attempting to deliberately observe our learners with patience more often, even if more often means that you're going to do it one more time per rotation that you have been, you know, what something, you know, manageable. Yeah. I I think I, well, I'm sorry I didn't say that. That is a very important one. And I think built into the idea that when you're writing something down, it has to be based on an observation. So, you know, people are not going to change from, you know, maybe seeing in in a half day clinic, uh, seeing, you know, no direct observation to watching every interaction, but you're right. An incremental change is, is only positive. Judy, thank you so much for joining me today. You're such an amazing colleague and friend, and it was fun. It was great to talk to you and also share your insights with our listeners. Thank you. And I I always learn from you, Lisa. So thank you so much for, this was definitely a conversation um, that we both contributed to. So thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I'm Lisa Coplett. Thanks for listening. I would like to thank the people who contributed to this show, Katie Lyons, our fabulous producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs>